we're in the season of Advent, right? And we talked last week about this word Advent, which I don't know if it's very common for any of you. It's not all that common in our context, but Advent essentially means arrival. And so it not only uh, looks back at Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago as a baby born in Bethlehem, but when we uh, celebrate Advent here, we're also looking forward to Christ's second coming, right? Which we don't know when that is, but we know that the Bible promises that he will return. And so our hope is found in the fact that Jesus is going to arrive again. Uh, last week, we took a look at this uh, concept of hope. And, uh, and essentially, there are four different themes for the Advent Sundays or for the Sundays of Advent. And those different themes, as you'll see up here on the screen, are hope which we talked about last week, and we said that hope is, uh, is not only an optimistic anticipation, but it's also a confident expectation, right? So, so it's not only optimistic, like, like the way we use hope in sort of the vernacular, but, uh, but it's much deeper than that in the fact that there's a confident expectation that we can find our hope in. Uh, we're going to celebrate this idea, this concept, this theme uh, of love next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to be taking a look at this, this Advent theme of peace. Today, we're going to be looking at the Advent theme of joy. These are the themes of Advent. Now, before we go ahead and begin, let me take a moment and let's just pray. Father, again, I um, just want to ask that you would be here this morning. I want to ask that, um, that your Holy Spirit would be uh, upon us as a body, that your presence would be here um, through him. Father, I pray that we would be able to experience you, um, that we would uh, know you not only intellectually, but that we would know you relationally as our Father. Father, I also ask that we would um, know your Son, Jesus, not only, again, theoretically, that we would know about him, but that we would, that we would know him and that we would walk with Jesus as our Savior. Father, I pray that uh, you would do these things in us uh, for your own honor and for your own glory, but for also our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I'm sure some of you guys out there um, had crushes when you were little, uh, when you were young, you know, elementary school, middle school. Well, I had a little crush um, pretty much all the way through elementary school and then probably through seventh grade. And this little crush I had was on a girl named Tamara Casey, all right? Tamara Casey. I should have had a picture and put it up for you. Anyway, but uh, in sixth grade, you know, so I had a crush on her for four or five years or whatever. And in sixth grade, I finally got the courage to, back in the day, you know, this is 30 some odd years ago or whatever, I don't know. Anyway, back in the day, you asked someone to go with you. That was the language. And so I finally sort of got my courage up and I was gonna ask Tamara Casey to go with me. And uh, so at the time, sixth grade, you know, I was about four foot 11, which means I was about two inches uh, shorter than I am now. Anyway, 4'11", <laughs> I had totally nerdy little glasses, and I was not a particularly cool kid. That may surprise some of you. Anyway, and, uh, but I got my courage up to ask Tamara to go with me. And so it was interesting. I remember vividly there was going to be a bowling party that night. And uh, so we're going to go to the bowling alley and have this party. She was, a, you know, one of my classmates at school. And so some, I don't know, the way that I think you asked people to go with you back then was you would construct a piece of paper. Will you go with me? Check yes, check no. It's true, actually. And so some, anyway, so as a sixth grade boy, crush forever on this little girl, Tamara Casey. I pass a note along to her, will you go with me? And miraculously, it made its way through a couple of my friends, through a couple of her friends, back to me with the yes box checked. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It was one of the better days of my life. Let me tell you, I was pretty excited about that. 
And so I was, you know, went home that night, you know, that day after school, and I was, so I didn't actually talk to her. That would not happen when you're going with people. Um, but I went home that night, and I was pretty excited. And so I remember I had this like dark blue hand-me-down polo sweater that was, that was like my one kind of nice piece of clothing. And I remember wearing that that night. And I remember wearing a pair of duckhead, which was kind of in style back then, khaki pants. And I remember like kind of looking good to go to the bowling party. And I'm pretty sure that I took some polo cologne. I don't know if it's polo cologne. Does anybody know what that is? Next time you're in wherever sells cologne, go, go take a whiff of the polo cologne. It is mighty strong. Anyway, put some of that on, probably doubled up on it, went to the bowling party. And I was just so happy that, you know, I'm going to get to hang out with uh, Tamara Casey. This is my new, you know, girlfriend or whatever, who I had never talked to really. Anyway, and I remember going to the bowling party and, uh, going over and kind of trying to, you know, kind of just talk to her a little bit. And she wasn't particularly interested in talking to me. And uh, so I'm at the bowling party. And a few minutes later, uh, one of her friends, Dia Weaver, was her name, D-E-E-Y-A, Dia Weaver, came up and said, oh, by the way, Tamara wants to break up. Okay, so <laughs> it had been a sum total of probably from about 1.30 in the afternoon to about 6.30 that night. So I had about five and a half hours of a going with relationship with this girl, Tamara Casey. Now, so uh, you can imagine, I was crushed, right? And so instead of bowling my usual 125, I think I was down in the 70s that night. I mean, it just affected me in lots of different ways. Obviously, it was very sad. Went home that night, and the way that I sort of processed through my grief was I, I pulled out one of my, like, seven cassette tapes. Back then, we had cassette tapes. And the one that I chose was Chicago 17, right? Anybody know any songs on Chicago 17? Thank you. And, uh, you know, Peter Cetera was the lead singer. And it was all, all these, you know, like sort of sad and somewhat romantic songs. Plugged it in. And I grieved by listening to the song Chicago 17. The, the album, sorry, the album Chicago 17, which came out in 1984. Right? That's how I grieved. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, and here's the question I would pose. Um, how, how should I have responded to being broken up with after five and a half hours? with this girl I had a crush on for a long time, right? How should I have responded? How, how have you responded in the past when you've had people break up with you, if that's ever happened to you? Well, what's interesting is, according to the Bible, I should have been joyful, right? I should have been joyful. Now, does that sound accurate? Does that sound right? Does that sound like that could possibly be an appropriate response to going through something as terrible as being broken up with when you're six, in sixth grade, right? Well, listen to what the Bible says in just a moment about joy. First of all, the Bible has a lot to say about joy. It really does. But, but what's interesting is, you know, when we hear the word joy, especially in 2014, you know, we think about joy maybe as a person's first name. So Joy Waddell runs our children's ministry. We're kind of familiar with joy in that regard. Or, or maybe we think about joy in terms of a, a Christmas song, like Joy to the World, we just heard in a little while ago. But the truth is, the concept of joy is something that probably most of us aren't familiar with, and it's kind of fallen out of vernacular usage. Like, we don't really talk about it very much, at least not as it was really intended to be used. Now, for some of us in this room, maybe have a little bit of a theological background, some of us understand the depth and the weight of this word joy. And so instead of it being sort of this archaic word, it actually seems like an impossible ideal, right? It seems like it's something that's just not realistic, in a world that's filled with cancer and death and, you know, all sorts of horrible things, is it really possible to have joy? Listen to what the Bible tells us. Listen to what Paul says. 
Now, here's what's interesting. Paul is writing this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. And this is right after he's experienced some serious persecution, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He says this, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always, he's saying, after he's been persecuted. Anybody in this room been persecuted lately? I kind of doubt it. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know where Paul was when he was writing that verse? He was in prison, right? Anybody in here been in prison lately? Much less been rejoicing. If you have, don't raise your hand. Um, But the point is, as Paul is saying, in the midst of these horrible circumstances, persecution from his, you know, fellow countrymen, not only that, but, but even in jail, he's saying you can pray. I mean, you can rejoice always. You can rejoice, right? So here's the question for us, I think. It, the question is, what is joy? And how in the world can we be expected to be joyful? How in the world can the Bible and can God and can Paul command that we be joyful even in the midst of our sufferings? Well, let's look really quickly at sort of the idea of the word joy. So, so next slide here, there's, there's a term called etymology. And etymology is a big fancy word that basically means like, you know, what's sort of the history of this word? Well, very quickly, one of the things that we can see is that the word joy in Greek is uh, pronounced kara, right? So if you know some, a girl named Kara, chances are the origin of her name, whether she knows it or not, is from the Greek word for joy, right? And what's interesting is the Greek word for joy is actually closely related to the word charis, which is the word which means grace. And so in some way, what uh, this word joy means is that it's actually related to this word grace. And grace fundamentally means undeserved merit or undeserved favor. It means you get something positively that you don't deserve. So for example, let's say one of you has a child and that child has been incredibly disobedient all day long. Uh, grace means not that you don't punish them or the, the sort of withdrawing punishment from them. That would actually be mercy. That's when you, when you actually don't give them what they do deserve. Grace is when you give them something they don't deserve. So grace would be your children or child was disobedient all day long and you actually take them out to get them an ice cream cone. That's what grace is. It's undeserved merit, undeserved favor. And joy is somehow related to this idea of undeserved merit, undeserved favor. This is important, okay? So let's, let's start right there and just sort of hang on to that for one moment. How else can we sort of go about understanding this, this concept of this word joy? Well, one of the things I think we do is we contrast our understanding of joy with happiness and sadness, at least uh, in as much as we can understand it from the way the Bible talks about it. So here's what I'm going to, here's how I'm going to define happiness. Happiness is a positive emotional response to something imminent, that means really close by, uh, or something that is impermanent, something that doesn't last a long time. So happiness, and we can see this up on the screen in a minute, is a positive emotional response to something imminent, that means close by, or impermanent. Let me give an example. Um, So um, some of you know this, some of you don't. Um, I do a New Year's resolution every year, and I've been doing this now since I was um, a junior in high school. And uh, so about three and a half years ago, or maybe four years ago now, because it's almost January, um, I decided to go on a vegetarian diet, right? Wasn't philosophical. It was purely that I had had sort of borderline high cholesterol. And so I thought, you know, this would be a great way to get sort of my blood down to where it should be. So I went on this vegetarian diet. Six weeks in, 
had to go get checked out for uh, life insurance. They did some blood work and the nurse came back, you know, after a few minutes, she said, your blood work is fantastic. And I didn't even tell her, I was like, yeah, you know, just six weeks ago, it wasn't so fantastic. And uh, so I was uh, on this vegetarian diet for three and a half years. Now, the downside of being a vegetarian is you can have, um, you know, you, you struggle to get protein. But one of the worst things that I struggled with was getting enough B12. And so the side effects of having low B12 are depression, dementia-like symptoms, and then extremely low energy. And I pretty much struggled with all three of those. And so after about three and a half years of living this way, like constantly being exhausted, having super, super low energy all the time, we were on vacation this summer. And uh, I had been sort of toying with the idea of going back on meat. And, uh, and I, we were on vacation. We were down in Florida. And uh, I was sitting there. And uh, we were going to actually have, we were, as a family, we were going to watch one of the World Cup games. It was France and Germany. And so that night, um, in order to watch this game, Kristen and I thought it would be a good idea to have food that represented German culture and French culture. And so Kristen made some French food, and she made some German food. And the German food, she got frankfurters. And uh, the ger- it was actually, they were um, boar's head frankfurters. They were really nice ones. So I'm sitting there that night thinking about watching this Germany-France game, thinking about my low energy, and I just sort of made a decision right there. I was like, I'm going back on meat tonight while I'm watching a World Cup game, and I'm going to have a frankfurter. Because obviously that's the best thing to eat when you're coming off a vegetarian diet for three and a half years. Anyway, the point is, so I had two of the best frankfurters that I've ever had in my life. And I literally sat there in front of the TV watching Germany and France play with a tear running (laughs) down my cheek. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. It was amazing. And, uh, the point is that, uh, man, I was so happy to eat meat. I really was. But it was very much, very much impermanent, right? Like there's nothing really of eternal significance in a frankfurter, right? Uh, it was an, it was a, but it was something that made me very happy, but it was impermanent, right? So happiness is a positive emotional response dear, uh, to something imminent, close by, and impermanent, right? All right, what about sadness? Sadness is a negative emotional response to something that is imminent, or impermanent. Let me read that one more time. Sadness is a negative emotional response to something that is imminent or impermanent. Let me give another illustration. So back in 2007, uh, the San Diego Chargers were 14 and 2. I'm a big San Diego Chargers fan. It's a long story. And uh, anyway, but they were 14 and 2. Uh, LT, Ladanian Tomlinson that year had scored something like 31 rushing touchdowns, just set this amazing record. San Diego was amazing. They were fantastic. They were the number one seed, and they had to play the New England Patriots in the second round of the playoffs, right? And so it was interesting because we had church that night, so I had to miss the game, but I had two people record it for me so that I could watch it that night. And uh, so I believe the carols recorded it for me. Thank you very much, Brian Carroll. And then uh, somebody who's not here anymore, a family that's no longer here, um, also recorded it for me. So after church that night, I, you know, pulled, got, I went to Brian Carroll's house. I got the videotape, because it was a videotape in those days, plugged it into my VCR, and I proceeded to watch the San Diego Chargers, who had been the best team in NFL football that year, 14-2, and two, lose to the New England Patriots, right? And so after watching this game, sitting in my home alone at like 1242 on a Sunday night, or I guess it was technically Monday morning by that point in time, and I saw that my team had lost, I was very sad, right? There was no real eternal significance to the fact that the San Diego Chargers didn't win. But this time, instead of listening to Chicago 17, I listened to some really sort of weepy, somber Sufjan Stevens, right? 
as a grown man. So if Krista had come downstairs that night at 1 a.m., she would have found me sitting glumly listening to this morose, sad music in my sadness. Again, point being here is that happiness, right, is a response to something that's imminent. It's close by. It's a hot dog, right? It's a PR when you're running a race. Um, it's, it's, you know, Alabama winning the football game last night. But it's something impermanent, right? Sadness is a negative emotional response to, again, something that's, that's really kind of nearby and is impermanent. Now, let me say this really quickly. It's totally appropriate to be sad and sorrowful at imminent or immediate tragedy, right? That's, that's actually, it's not just okay. It's probably good. It's probably healthy for you to experience um, happiness, but also to experience sadness over tragedy, over loss, even over things that are um, that are imminent, even over things that are not permanent. That's okay. Jesus grieved, right? Jesus was sorrowful. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53. These tell us about Jesus. It says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus experienced sorrow. Not only that, but in John chapter 11, Jesus, while standing in the process of, or in the context of something that was imminent, but yet impermanent, the death of his friend Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. Jesus was sorrowful, and it's appropriate for us to be sorrowful as well. Don't I'm not trying to say it's not okay. I'm not trying to say it's not right or that it's not healthy. But our joy transcends, overcomes, overwhelms, swallows up both our happiness and our sadness. This is why the psalmist could say that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Okay? So, again, we're talking about joy. You may have forgotten that because I started talking about all these other things and telling all these wonderful stories. Um, but we need to get back to this question of what is joy in light of this discussion of etymology that is related to the word grace uh, in contrast with this concept of happiness and sadness. What is joy? Now, here's what I think is the answer. Joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. Let me read that one more time. The joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. That's that grace component. So just to follow up, we're happy when something in the here and now goes our way. Our football team wins. Someone gives us a gift that we really like. Our kids are particularly well behaved on our trip. And so we're happy, right? Legitimately happy in the same manner. We're sad when something in the here and now does not go our way. When our favorite football team loses or doesn't make the SEC championship, UGA, when we don't get the job, right? When our significant other leaves us, when our kids are particularly badly behaved on a trip, we're legitimately sad. Joy, again, however, transcends our immediate situation, whether it's good or bad, because joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. In other words, the transcendent reality, that thing that's way bigger than anything we can see, feel, or touch, God's grace, 
the fact that he adopts us as his children, the fact that he forgives us for our sins, the fact that he declares us righteous, the fact that he loves us, as Julie talked about this morning, that those transcendent reality, those transcendent graces are so much better than our imminent reality that no matter what happens in the here and now, we can rejoice in the then and there. Does that make sense, right? Uh, I love I love, love Negro spirituals. Um, I just absolutely love them. Uh, I went to an interracial church in Chattanooga for about four years. And in the context of this church, because it was African-American and Anglo, a lot of times these, these Negro spirituals would be worked into the liturgy and into the hymns. And you'd sing these songs that were written by people who, who were slaves, right? I mean, these, these are people who had their children sold to other people, right? These are people whose you know, wives and their, the wives and the husbands were separated and, and one was sold here and one was sold there. They were beaten, they were mistreated. But you know what comes out in Negro spirituals? What comes out in Negro spirituals is joy, 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 because the transcendent and permanent reality is so much better than the imminent and impermanent reality that they face. Listen to the words of one of these Negro spirituals. This is from Charles Tinley. This, uh, the words of this spiritual go like this. Oftentimes my sky is clear. Joy abounds without a tear. Though a day so bright begun, clouds may hide tomorrow's sun. There'll be a day that's always bright, a day that never yields to night. And in its light, the streets of glory I shall behold someday, right? And so here's a person who's a slave that can say, my life in the here and now is filled with suffering, My life in the here and now is hard. My life in the here and now is cause for sadness and sorrow and for pain, but I can have joy because the transcendent reality of the fact that God's going to make everything all right one day is enough to make me be able to rejoice. Happiness is a positive emotional response to something imminent, little, and impermanent, not lasting, but joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. Okay, time out here really quickly. Let me, let me talk about two things. And again, you could talk about a bunch of things, but let me talk about two of these transcendent and permanent realities, two of these transcendent and permanent graces that allow us to be joyful, right? And, and we, I, I could have chosen from a list of adoption. I could have talked about how we were adopted. I could have talked about how the fact that we're saved. I could have talked about the fact that we're declared righteous or that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. I could have talked about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and so will we, or that there's now no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of those would be reasons to be joyful. They are reasons to be joyful. We're told to be joyful because of those things. I'm going to talk very quickly about two. The first one I want to talk about is that we can be joyful because God himself is our reward. Okay. Again, I'm going to read this one more time. We can be joyful because God is our reward. Listen to the words of Job. Again, probably pretty familiar with that story of the suffering that, uh, that happens in the life of Job. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. So in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, they see their ruin and they rejoice. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks and the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. In other words, what we're being told here in Job is that we can rejoice 
because God is our reward, right? Salvation, wonderful. Adoption is wonderful, right? Avoiding hell, great, wonderful. Those are all reasons to rejoice. But part of what we're being told here in Job is that one of the reasons we rejoice is because God himself is our reward. Some of you know that I played college soccer um, a long time ago now. And, uh, and I, as I think back about, you know, playing soccer with these guys for four years, you know, we won a lot of games. We happened to be pretty good. That's awesome, right? That was fun. We got to practice a lot. I stayed in shape. Those are all good things. But, but you know what the reward was for playing soccer? The reward was the relationships that I, that I had with these guys, right? In fact, I, my coach was not the nicest human on the planet, and that's sort of an understatement. And there were a few times where I thought really seriously about quitting, but I always stuck with it, not even because of the soccer, not because I loved the soccer that much, but because I loved these guys. I loved them, right? You know, Chris and I had the chance, I've had the chance to go to, to France. We've had the chance to go to Italy. We've traveled these places together. We've seen these amazing things. And you go to these, you know, wonderful cities, these jewels of Europe, and uh, you see amazing artifacts and amazing buildings, and you see culture and you see history. But, you know, the, the actual reward uh, of being in those places isn't actually those places. It's being there with my wife. She's my reward. Does that make sense? And part of what we're being told here in Job is that God is the thing that is our actual reward, and we can rejoice because of that. So often we're concerned about gaining happiness via a new phone, right? Or, or maybe getting a PR in a race. That's a great thing to be happy about. Or even a vacation, but every single one of those things is temporary. Every single one of those things is imminent. The true reward of Christianity is a God who is eternal, right? God himself can be your reward. And because God says, I'm with you, you can rejoice, right? And again, if you remember that it's, it's an undeserved blessing, an undeserved favor, it's, it's associated with that concept of grace. And so it's particularly God says, I'm with you, even when you don't really want to be with me, right? I'm with you even when you've disobeyed me time and time again. I'm with you even when you've rebelled against me. I'm with you. We can rejoice because God is our reward. The second thing I want us to look at very quickly is that we can be joyful. We can rejoice because God rejoices over us. Listen to the words of Zephaniah. The Lord, your God in your midst, the mighty one will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And so there's this picture of an upset baby for whatever reason, crying, upset. And uh, and there's this picture that, that we're given of God, our heavenly father who holds us as a child, in his arms, and who rejoices over us. You know, Jesus was famous for painting pictures of God the Father that made the Pharisees very uncomfortable. And here we're given another picture of God that might make us a little uncomfortable. It's, it's this, this picture of God our Father holding us in his arms and rejoicing over us with singing. You know, when we lived on Lookout Mountain, uh, I would take uh, Sam and I would take May and I would put them in a stroller, um, and I would walk them around the different streets of Fairland, which is the top of Lookout Mountain. And as I would take them around, a lot of times they'd be crying, they'd be foul, but I would sing to them, and the houses were kind of far off the road, so probably nobody heard me. And if I saw somebody else coming, I'd kind of quiet down for a minute. Anyway, 
but I would sing over them, right? I would sing over them until they were quiet. I would rejoice over them. I remember vividly holding Sam. I remember vividly holding May. I remember vividly holding Levi and singing over them at night before I put them in their crib at night, rejoicing over my children. And what Zephaniah does here, what God tells us is he rejoices over you. And remember, he rejoices over you, particularly when it isn't deserved, right? When you have rebelled against him, when you don't want anything to do with him, when you have been particularly sinful, he rejoices over you. Jesus reiterates this same truth in Luke chapter 15 when he tells the story of this shepherd who goes out and finds a sheep. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep, right? Not rejoice with me, I've got 99 good sheep that were obedient, but rather rejoice with me because I've got this one kind of foolish, kind of disobedient, kind of rebellious sheep. Let's rejoice over this sheep. God rejoices over us, particularly when we don't deserve it. Hear the gospel now. Those of you who worry that God is angry with you, if you trust in Jesus, know that God rejoices over you, even especially when it's not deserved. Those of you who worry that God looks at you with a furrowed and angry, disappointed brow, know that God rejoices over you with singing. And that's precisely when it isn't deserved. It's this transcendent reality that God loves and rejoices over us that allowed G.K. Chesterton, this uh, great theologian, to say joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Now this morning, if you look behind you, there are tables. And on those tables, there's bread and wine. There's bread and grape juice in the top. There's bread and grape juice. And this is a meal which ultimately symbolizes the things we've been talking about, these transcendent realities. And, and these transcendent realities that this meal uh, represent are, are basically that you're forgiven, right? That you're declared righteous, that you've been adopted as God's daughter or adopted as God's son, that he rejoices over you, that he loves you. Part of what this meal symbolizes is, again, because it's undeserved, basically this meal symbolizes, hey, regardless of your rebellion, regardless of your sin, regardless of how much you've wanted to keep me at bay or at arm's length, I'm inviting you to come and sit down at the table. This is a family meal. Does that make sense? And this is a family meal for those people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And so if you're someone who trusts in Christ alone, you can receive this meal. You can take this bread and dip it into the wine. You can dip it into the grape juice. And you can hear the proclamation that God rejoices over you with singing. You can rejoice knowing that God himself is your reward, that he says, I'm with you, even when you don't want to be with me, if you trust in his son alone for your salvation. Hear now the words of institution that we have given to us in 1 Corinthians 11. We're told this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for inviting us um, to your table. For those of us who have trusted in your son, Jesus alone, for those of us who have um, forsaken uh, and, and decided not to trust in our own righteousness or the absence of badness in us, but, but rather our declaration, our proclamation, our stance is completely in your son Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And so, Father, I pray that in this meal this morning that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter, the author of our faith, that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down, down at the right hand of your throne for the joy that was set before him. So, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name today. Amen.